Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, which was never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalogue of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. Happy 2024, everyone. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. It is so great to be back. I'm Dr. Mim Fox, and I am here for yet another year with my wonderful friend and colleague, Liz Murphy. Hi, Liz. Yes, another year. Hi, Mim, and hello, everyone. And yes, happy 2024. What a big year. Do you realise, Liz, we've been podcasting now for five years? I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. So the Social Work Stories podcast has been going strong for five years. It's a celebration, I think. We've done so many episodes now and heard so many incredible stories from our colleagues. It's been such a gift, hasn't it? Like, I feel quite humbled by it. It has been a gift. And you know, Mim, that I'm retired. My fellow listeners don't know this, that I've retired from health. And certainly my intention is to not retire from the podcast because, like you say, it's something that brings sheer joy to, certainly to both of us, um, listening to the stories of our friends and colleagues and sharing them with our friends and colleagues and my mum and dad. Um, How was your first summer, Liz, in your retirement? It still feels like I'm on Christmas holidays, quite frankly. (laughs) I'm growing vegetables and I'm, you know, renovating and I'm hanging out with grandchildren and friends and yeah it feels like I'm still on holidays and hopefully for the rest of my life I feel like that that's wonderful um but yeah and look Mim before we get cracking into this story I did want to say because I have more time for podcasting I just wanted to spruik to our listeners that if ever you've thought that you'd like to share a story but had kind of, you know, maybe procrastinated, maybe put it off, maybe didn't know how to go about doing it. What I want to say to our listeners is, I am here to help you with that. I am here to help you shape the story. We'll have a great conversation over Zoom, especially if you're on the other side of the world. We can have a chat about it. I can help you shape it. It would be my absolute pleasure to do that because after all, I need to live vicariously through my social work colleagues and friends now that I'm not practising. So please, you'll be doing me a favour more than anything. So all you need to do is contact us at the Social Work Stories podcast and we'll put all our details in the show notes. So just drop us an email and I can respond very quickly now. I love that, Liz. And, you know, every time you and I have worked with people to shape their stories, it's such an amazing experience, isn't it? You get really close to the story and to the practitioner as well in hearing the really intricate work that they do. Um, so I really do encourage everyone as well to come and spend some time with Liz uh, and um, and tell your stories. I mean, 
gosh, everyone's doing such incredible work out there every single day. We need to get this stuff, keep been going. And you know what? I'll just leave it with this fridge magnet statement. Have Mike can travel. So I also am more than happy to, if I can, come right to your door with my microphone and we can do it together like that. I've got, I've got the time and the space to do that now. You know, Liz, I think you've just... I think you've just designed our next Social Work Stories podcast t-shirt. Have Mike, we'll travel. I love it. Hey, maybe we can, maybe we can make these t-shirts up for those people who are sharing their stories with that us. That would be beautiful. Oh, well, all right. Next team meeting. Okay, let's get on with this. And it's 2024 and the ideas are flowing. I love it. I love it. So to kick us off, 2024, Liz, we have this phenomenal story actually a couple of stories in one and um and this is from a um, emergency department hospital social worker who is doing some beautiful stuff therapeutically but also combining some research in there as well it's a gorgeous combination i'm i'm with you and uh, i'm just chuckling to myself because we always start with oh this is a spectacular story and we love this i love it but but the other thing i wanted to mention about this particular story it is narrative therapy lens that this social worker uses and it's so interesting Mim to actually have a therapist in this setting emergency setting using narrative therapy you don't often see it in this in this particular domain of practice right and so that's why it's also very very special it's an innovative uh, research project but it's also um, a therapeutic um, project that's really very very interesting and um, w- before we launch into it I encourage students clinicians to really listen to the language that this social worker is using because there's lots of words there that are very very specialized to narrative therapy you know you're going to hear words like I love this one invisibilize I can barely pronounce it totalizing reauthoring decolonizing rehumanizing amazing words and i have a feeling this is going to be one of those episodes mim that um i hope our our uni lecturers will recommend because it really is using narrative therapy in a very in a beautiful way in an unusual setting it's also just very much theory um framed this story, these stories, as well as value framed, the values and the theories are center are the center of everything here. So I think absolutely, as an exercise, uh, as you're listening, everyone, just see where it is that you can um, anchor anchor the theory and the values to within it. It's very explicit, and um, and we'll talk about it anyway afterwards. And just finally, I think the setting is such a beautiful contrast to what this social worker is doing with her clients. It very much is in some way the complete opposite to what she's trying to do, especially in terms of documentation with these patients. So have a listen and there's lots that we want to talk about from different angles when we come back. I want to acknowledge and extend my respect to any Aboriginal elders, people or practitioners who may be listening to this podcast story. 
This is important for me to begin in this way for many reasons. Most of all because the two stories that I'll share throughout this podcast story are from Aboriginal patients who are accessing healthcare in the hospital where I worked. The practice context is a busy metropolitan hospital, specifically in the emergency department. It is a busy, bustling environment with all kinds of different presentations. Pages and phones are often going off. Visually, it's a clinical, read-sanitised environment. And there is not a great deal of privacy with that stiff blue curtain that can be pulled around the patient bed for the guise of privacy. In the emergency department environment, structuralist ideas of people needing to be managed, fixed, referred on, or needing clinicians as experts to assess and intervene and manage them and to make decisions about best clinical pathways is rife. Ideally, this this process should occur in consultation with patients, but in fact, much of the decision-making lies in the hands of clinical teams. The role of social work is often to help people resolve some kind of psychosocial distress that will enable the person to either be discharged or proceed to another part of the hospital. The stories that I want to share with you today is a practice innovation that I undertook about how to explore narrative practice of reauthoring and how that could influence the stories that get told and recorded about people experiencing homelessness who present to emergency department environments so that we can all take steps away from dominant pathologizing discourses which totalize people's identities with little regard for the broader context of that person's set of circumstances, such as poverty, trauma, mental health, addiction, underfunding or neglect of social housing for many decades, family and relational violence, all get invisibilized by systems that seek to efficiently triage, assess and discharge people from hospital environments. As such, this is a story that's deeply anchored in social values of dignity, human rights, valuing of personhood and justice doing. Justice doing in the sense of exploring how clinicians use professional power, how we hold awareness of our professional privileges, and how we do daily practices of accountability in our work. Before I go on, I think it's important for me to locate myself in the work, that I come to this space as an educated, now middle-class, able-bodied Anglo woman in a senior clinical role. It's absolutely critical that I hold this awareness of the intersections that I hold and how this may affect my practice or how it might be experienced by the people that I serve. This acknowledgement of my intersections is part of a deliberate intention to be decentered but influential, meaning to not privilege what I think I know and also to allow for other forms of knowledge and skills to be given visibility. Throughout this practice innovation, I use clinical data mining with a narrative lens to analyse the top 10 most frequently presenting patients. Eight in-depth interviews were then conducted and a social story checklist and a collective document were co-authored. Importantly, the collective document and reauthorizing documentation takes particular care to the use of words, to use the words of participants, externalizing problems from individuals so as to not colonize their story with my words, interpretation, or the influence of pathologizing discourses. Significantly, most of the 10 files that I reviewed did not have any social history documented or only used single word descriptors to describe individuals, such as mental health, alcoholic, homeless, health conditions, intravenous drug user, or a risk of aggression. There wasn't any record, really, of trauma histories or locational problems in broader social contexts. There was minimal reference to either explanations of health behaviours or asking the patient what sense they made of the continued presence of these problems in their lives, which resulted in them so frequently presenting to hospital. So it influenced my thinking as to who gets to decide what a deserving or undeserving presentation is. What do these pathologizing discourses inform on our thinking and decision-making? What allows certain words to become accepted and therefore unquestioned? 
This was evidenced by the concerns of project participants in the collective document where they said, don't just believe what you read on my file or what your colleagues say about me. And that if you have a bad interaction with a staff member at the hospital, that it felt like that the next time you went, that staff member always seemed to be there. And so it always carries on every time. And then she tells her friends and then it's like a domino falling and they all hold a bad opinion of you. And what happens when a client doesn't neatly fit into an assessment or treatment pathway? What does that motivate the clinician to do? To accept, to protest, to resist, to advocate, to acknowledge that systems are oftentimes designed in ways to exclude those that do not present in a certain way. And in the collective document, participants said, a number of us agreed that you can tell as soon as another person walks up to you how this is going to play out. Some of us felt that in a hospital situation that you have to convince someone how unwell you are or actually be hospitalised before they'll take you seriously or want to know your story. And what happens when a client does protest? Do clinical staff question what it is that the consumer is protesting against? And where does the right to have an opinion about one's own life go in clinical settings? And so participants in the collective document said, some of us have shared stories of being judged and pigeonholed by staff. And if they protested about how they were spoken to, that they were told they were being aggressive. One of us said, they have the power and you just have to cop it. And another one of us said, that all, my, all I have in my life is my name. I've got no power. Give me a chance to know the real me. So this project therefore sought to bring forward what was absent but implicit in the clinical environment about what good patients do, what it is that is the job of clinicians to assess and form judgments about people, and what are the presumptions about needing to manage people who are actually surviving on their own. That a quick discharge is a good discharge, that if people wanted to find a way out of their circumstances, then they would. For example, the hospital staff might say, well, we've offered them emergency housing and they didn't take it. They must want to be homeless. And so the, the project invited me to ask clinicians about whether they could understand that identities are socially constructed and to understand that taking an accurate psychosocial history becomes critically important in understanding how individual lives are influenced by history, culture, gender, sexuality, class, and other broader relations of power, and that we need to make room for other forms of knowledge and ways of knowing. So I wanted to challenge clinical staff to think about to whom do they think they were responsible or accountable to, to the system or the person they were writing the documentation about. And could multidisciplinary staff clearly and succinctly identify what ethics were guiding their practice? What accountability practices would these staff be drawing upon that would tell them that they were holding themselves accountable to the patients that they were working with? And so by turning the compliance lens back on clinicians and inviting them to see a more multi-storied account of the patients experiencing homelessness, I was inviting them to reflect on how, if we don't see the broader context of people's lives because of busy systems requirements and processes, we may, we may inadvertently become complicit in the reproduction of power relations in a therapeutic context. As such, this work consciously adopted a decolonizing and critical data mining research methodology to seek to resist dominant Western biomedical ways of conceptualizing healthcare and research. Central to the practice innovation was the question of whether the community that was being um, consulted uh, had a focus on relationships and did it bring forward alternative knowledges and make health practices of documenting and care planning more dignifying. So in the second phase of the project, where there were in-depth clinical interviews, there were questions around, whilst there was questions around what led to the person's homelessness, I also made it clear that they didn't have to answer any questions 
and that our discussion could include things that they wish to speak about, not just what I was interested to know about. How, if I asked questions and in what order, would vary according to how the discussion organically unfolded. And there was a real ethic of care towards the participant to ensure that the discussion continued to feel supportive and helpful to them. That there was space for pause and silence, for careful tracking of words to bring forward deep understanding and respect. I elected not to record the interviews as many individuals that I worked with who might be experiencing homelessness and mental health and addiction issues might feel distrustful of being recorded due to previous negative experiences with hospitals. I was transparent that I would take some notes to capture their words to reduce the likelihood that I would be interpreting or speaking on their behalf. There were questions which sought to challenge the assumption that homelessness might be the biggest problem facing the individual when they presented to the emergency department, such as if you had to give a name to the biggest problem facing your life, what would it be? Does the word homelessness describe your set of circumstances or is there a word that you would prefer that we use? And what would you like us to know or speak about if we weren't talking about your housing situation? There were questions that sought to bring forward alternative knowledges, skills and ways of responding, such as through the experience of being without housing, much hard-won knowledge is gained about surviving and how to keep yourself safe. What is it that you would want others to know who aren't experiencing homelessness that has been helpful to you? And what are the skills that you've developed since being without housing that you value? And what has helped you through difficult times? There were questions that sought to query whether there was a dissonance between how clinical staff conceptualised that person and whether it was in alignment with how that person saw themselves and what they gave value to. So there was questions such as, what assumptions have people made about you that didn't fit with how you saw yourself? What gives dignity and meaning to your life? And what would you hold precious or not want to give up if you were to be housed? Can you tell me one thing that might surprise the doctors or nurses to know about you? And does trauma, loneliness or a lack of connection get in the way of being able to maintain housing? So given the time frame available in the podcast, I've chosen to share briefly two stories to demonstrate the reauthoring interview and documentation process. So Elliot had been homeless for approximately 20 years on and off. When I reviewed his file, the dominant single storyline that had been documented was about his mental health. He was noted to be of Aboriginal background, but there was no real acknowledgement of this or Elliot's connection or disconnection to community, country and family. We started with a story about time and the difficulty Elliot sometimes had in keeping to a timeline. Elliot attributed this to his mental health and then when it wasn't good that the timeline gets thrown out of the window and stuff happens. And this makes it hard and he can get into trouble medically. This echoed others in the collective document who said, please give me time and don't rush me. Some of us have experienced that when people are too busy, they just judge you straight away. One of us explained that when there was not enough time to say what they wanted, that he ended up just giving up because he thinks that it's not worth it. That the staff member wasn't interested anyway and that they've formed their own opinion. Importantly, Elliot did have strong views on the biggest problem that had been affecting his life when he was homeless. And he said, not having a mailing address, if you don't have this, you're absolutely stuffed. This led to a discussion about the ways in which systems can make it hard for people to enact change in their circumstances. That systems can always expect you to be going here and there and can give you the runaround when you might have extremely limited funds with which to transport yourself around. And if you don't have money for fares, then you run the gauntlet of getting a fine, which puts you even further behind. We discussed the assumptions that can be made about people experiencing homelessness. And Elliot said, 
It's always on the file. Different times, different statement gets made. People think you're aggressive. I'm actually pretty easygoing. I'll only react if someone else is acting up, and then I'll arc up back. And this interestingly led to a storyline about not putting up with bullshit from other people who might be giving hospital staff a hard time. It was that this behaviour was sometimes misinterpreted as Elliot being verbally aggressive, but really it spoke to his commitment about people speaking respectfully to each other. I asked Elliot about what he would want to be talking about if we weren't talking about his housing situation. And he said, being well is actually really important to me. Staff do not see how unwell I really am a lot of the time. That they're not doing anything, but I actually had no money and was having a lot of a tough time. And I asked him, what did that knowledge make possible for you? He said, it dulled the aggression and pain. It also helps me to keep going because I'm always trying to get myself out of the situation and get a job. I've even tried to go to uni a few times. And I asked him then about what might surprise the doctors or nurses to know about you. And he said, education's really important to me. Losing my mind at times has been really hard. I'm also really good at reading rooms and people. And I know a lot about medicines. Following our interview, I wrote up our conversation in a counter story. And I read it aloud to Elliot over the phone to ensure that the counter story accurately reflected his words, skills and knowledges in a way that felt okay for him. Elliot said that it felt good to hear his words and knowledges reflected back and we were able to have a further rich conversation about what it might mean for someone to have a space where they can talk about things that they want to talk about, not just what clinicians want to talk about. And Elliot advised me that because we were staying focused on what he wanted to talk about, that he now felt comfortable to open up about problems that he was experiencing and to share what it was that he was doing to take steps away from the problems that were in his life. He agreed that it would be useful for his current mental health case manager to know about some of the things that he'd shared in our second conversation and that they could get a letter of the counter story letter. So after uploading his counter story onto his medical record, I then shared the letter with his case manager who hadn't known many of these things about Elliot and who now intended to start further conversations as a result of hearing the story. Ethically, what these exchanges reinforced to me is the centrality of relationships and the importance of collecting stories across time. Of, doing, of the doing of respect and dignifying practices, such as deep listening, and that clinicians will actually end up with a much richer, more authentic, person-centered account of the people that we work with. I now want to share Simon's story. He had presented about 161 times in the past 10 or 11 years. Much was written in his clinical notes about his tendency to present after hours, and the dominant totalizing storyline being recorded about Simon was his ongoing relationship with alcohol misuse. He'd often present requesting detox, but was described by staff as a difficult historian, evasive, failing at dis detox, but he was also calm and polite. It was 10 years after, Elliot uh, after Simon first presented to ED that he had a listed entry from social work, at which point other storylines started to emerge. That Simon had worked for many years prior to the alcohol problem, that he'd had a disrupted childhood with significant trauma that he liked cooking, cleaning and playing video games and that he was a dad. Significantly for the bulk of his presentations to emergency, he hadn't been identified as being of Aboriginal background. I first met Simon in the ED when he presented seeking healthcare and I asked him about whether he did identify as Aboriginal and he confirmed that he did, but he often doesn't disclose as he doesn't want to be treated any differently. In this initial meeting, it was ethically challenging for me as to how to handle this feeling that it was an important unspoken story, but knowing that in an ED environment, there's no privacy, there's considerable time pressures, 
and that I needed to focus really on building relationship and trust with Simon before he might want to tell me further about that story. We wrote up his counter story in the form of a therapeutic letter, which I'll now share excerpts of. Dear Simon, thank you for speaking with me when you were recently in hospital. I very much appreciated the generosity of your time and sharing of your wisdom. When we started talking, I mentioned to you that I had reviewed your medical record and I could see quite clearly your commitment to trying to get into detox, despite many years of the alcohol problem trying to take over your life. You mentioned to me that sometimes the alcohol problem has you telling yourself that you do not know another way because it's affected many of the other members of your family. You shared your thoughts that the hospital staff get sick of you coming to hospital and that sometimes you felt you've had to prove how sick you are and that many times staff have just seen the alcohol problem. We discussed that when staff just see the alcohol problem, you don't feel valued as a whole person. You told me that you felt like you couldn't keep doing the alcohol problem in the same way anymore because the alcohol problem prevents you from dealing with the deep down stuff and it invites you to think and to not bring this stuff up even though you think it might help you one day. You told me that it was important to you to never forget who you are and you also shared your belief that change is possible. Being able to give up drugs has led you to maintain this belief that overcoming an alcohol problem is possible and you also wanted to maintain your commitment to the belief that you can do anything. You shared with me that you had learnt this value of the belief from your grandmother. Over the years, you've also learnt the skill of patience and to stress less, and that you like to sit by the water and watch the boats. This helps you to feel calm and think of your big brother. And so now I just want to speak a bit about the ethical dilemmas that came up in the process, because the reality of doing these letters uh, was a bit tricky for me, given that sometimes there was a gap between when I did the interview with Simon or Elliot when I wrote the letter up and then shared the letter with them, uh, that it was important for me to remain decentered in the process and be transparent with them if things got in the way of me responding quickly, that it wasn't about me not valuing their time or priorities, but the reality of my practice context is situated in an environment where there are often multiple competing priorities. It also felt that for every part that I completed, there were many other steps that might be valuably taken. For example, when I did Simon's letter, I shared this with my ED colleagues by doing an in-service about my practice innovation. Fortunately, my nursing colleagues were all really open to this and remarked that in hearing the story, it had been important and that many things had stuck out for them. That patients' lives are multi-storied, that when we see the skills and knowledge, about that this makes a difference in how we can think about the person. That it's important that we acknowledge their efforts to overcome problems that health interventions have an impact on how people feel about themselves and whether they feel encouraged or discouraged to continue, and that it was new for them to consider that clinicians have a power differential over patients. And finally, that as a result of hearing the counter story, they thought they would be more mindful of their words, their awareness of the power differentials and accountability in their documentation. Another aspect of the practice innovation was a checklist for the social story resistance. And this came out of acknowledgement that there needed to be an ongoing tool to assist assist clinical staff in shaping double-storied conversations so that this could be used to bring forward alternative knowledges that might serve to balance and outweigh the expert knowledge of the medical model, which has a tendency, as we know, to pathologize individuals rather than problems. And so there was a real focus on asking the person what they felt the main problem was to identify their skills, knowledge, and ways of responding, to identify what sustains a problem, to give visibility to the assumptions that can be made when totalizing stories are told, and to bring forward preferred ways of describing self and what the person holds as precious. 
And before bringing this podcast story to a bit of a close, I want to acknowledge that I've sought to be aware throughout of my own professional power and have refused to make totalizing knowledge claims, though my colleagues sometimes ask me to. And I would rather use my professional privilege to create space for subjugated knowledges and different forms of relationship based on respect for our insider knowledge and the reciprocity that can occur between clinicians and patients. It has required deep listening in the spirit of respect, dignifying and rehumanizing practices, and the embodiment and enactment of core social work values and theories. I hope that you found this story influential in getting you to think about how you can translate key ideas that I've spoken about to your practice context and the folk that you routinely meet with so that we can walk alongside people in a more trauma-informed, honouring way. You know, the, even just, let's start right at the beginning. The way that this social worker describes the hospital environment just takes you right back into the context, the stark nature of the environment, the blue sheets lining the beds, the um, cold environment that they're in. Um, it really, it's really setting you up for uh, a sort of juxtaposition, a complete contrast to then the beautiful work that she's actually doing, right? It's setting that tone very much so. And I think she describes it as structuralist ideas and versus what we often talk about in health as our so-called partnering with patients. When, when we know the reality is, especially in an ED setting, that that often is not the case. Yeah. And so what she, as you say, the, the contradiction starts with the pathologising language that's used. Yeah. The, they're narrowing down the person's experience to even one-word descriptions. One-word descriptions yeah. that are a diagnosis, for instance, are just homeless. Um, but how many times, I mean, I remember that so clearly, Liz, working in hospitals, just that notion of the difficult patient, that notion of the person who is just not making it super easy for the staff to just do what they see as their role in that moment, as opposed to coming from the experience of the person. And I love the way this social work talks about those dominant discourses that actually happen in the environment, because homeless presentations are absolutely where that happens so often. And the lingering nature of those labels too, Min. Mm. So that's the yep. other thing, that uh, you can actually be labelled with something from a previous admission, but it can haunt you. Or let's just say, for instance, you are being assertive and, and actually wanting to voice your concerns. All that's it right. takes is that one word, let's just go with aggressive, and that can actually live with you in 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 um, future admissions yeah, yeah. It, it's it's absolutely amazing and I love the way that she is able to capture that especially for those people who have never really worked in hospitals or even been a patient you know the the power of the documentation is is so important for people to understand especially our social work students yeah it is so easy for someone to flippantly write something in a note that then hangs over the future presentations of a person into that system, right? And that they, it snowballs. 
what is written in that first note uh, snowballs into actually character assassination as you go on and on and on and really impacts the care that people receive and the actually massive life events for them where they could potentially be discharged to, what sort of services and supports they could receive, how they and their family or friends or loved ones are treated within the system. The impact is immense, actually. Mim, the social worker used um, a word that I haven't heard for a while, um, but was often used in my course back in the 80s, and that is the, the deserving word. Yes, yes. And it was really interesting to reflect on how that can be, um, I guess, the impact of documentation on that theme, on that sense of the person, that staff actually can carry a sense of the deserving with them in the way in which they treat, especially around the issue of homelessness, yeah. I have found. Um, and I, th I thought that was just something really worth kind of focusing on how um, careful we need to be. The other example yeah. I thought about... Um, Labels and documentation was in Simon's story. Here's an example of, um, of, a, of a man who had had 167 admissions. Mm. Now, in many of the EDs that I've worked in, there's this dreadful expression that uh, hopefully social workers don't use. Certainly, my social work students are told to never use it. And that is frequent flyers that yes. will often yes. be referred to for people like Simon who have had many admissions and that could I wouldn't even be surprised if that might even have been in his documentation but again the power of just that one label like frequent flyers absolutely so it, yeah and and I think the other thing that the social worker really helped me to understand was the importance of the contextualization that social workers can bring to the person's story within That's the documentation, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And often, you know, the social worker's under so much pressure to write quick, succinct notes, to actually just get it done quickly. They don't have much time. They're moving on to the next case or it's the end of a really busy day and just quick, quick, quick. But actually the power of giving words, the written word to that story, to be able to communicate actually this individual's experience in life to the rest of the team and to have that then linger in the notes I think this social worker really painted that picture incredibly well of why that is so important to give time and thought and consideration and what are the values that are underpinning your documentation so what is that per what does person-centered care actually mean with every word that you write um, I love that and I it, this whole story made me think about a piece of um, a student that Ben Joseph, who's our, you know, uh, is our producer on Social Work Stories, Liz, but also is the host of Social Work Discoveries. And he and I just had a student on placement in a hospital emergency department looking at homelessness. And it was really interesting. I'm going to do a shout out now to Artemis, who is one of our Masters of Social Work qualifying students, uh, because she did a piece of work around what are some of those barriers and challenges for people who are homeless in an emergency department? And what is, what is preventing them from having this high level person-centered care? And what happens then with where they go in the end? And how are those decisions made? And how is that flagged? And what resources 
do they actually end up supporting them? And so what I love about this story is it's given the, the story to those experiences. Mim, um, I was interested in some of the questions that the social worker used around the issue of homelessness, for instance, you know, what led to homelessness. Um, what, what do you actually want to talk about with me? Because sometimes the presumption yeah. can be that the issue is homelessness. But I think she asks, if you had to give a name to the biggest problem in your life at the moment, what would it be? It might not be the homelessness. That That's sometimes right. we will go That's in right. as social workers because our colleague has said, you know, Simon's back in um, and because Simon's, you know, had homelessness as an issue in previous admissions, the assumption could be that that's what Simon's wanting to talk about or, or have some support around this time. But it may not have been. That's right. That's right. That's right. And often it isn't. Often it's because something else has happened in their world that actually has been part of this current presentation that actually this issue of homelessness has had a larger trajectory than this, you know, half an hour that you're getting with them in the emergency department. Yeah. Does the word homelessness describe your circumstances or would you use a different word? Uh, I, I, like I absolutely love the phrasing of these questions, Liz, right? They are absolutely, uh, if you think about how we, um, how we teach to the positioning of questions and this concept of exploratory, exploratory interviewing, this is absolutely examples of how we open up the discussion beyond the referral. I, I agree, Mim, and I think um, if anyone's wanting to, I guess, use these questions in different ways, you know, I, I found myself pausing throughout the listening yeah. and writing these questions because that, that is the very nature of narrative therapy, is to construct questions that actually allow the person to tell a bigger story than some of the ones that we might, you know, using a more structuralist lens might be using within the emergency yeah. um, context, for instance, or elsewhere. Um, and w the other question, Mim, was what else would you like us to know about you? And what this opens up, of course, is what is... What are some of the other parts of your story that you think are important for me to hear at the moment? So that, that, that right. contextualising of what's going on in life at the moment that's important for us to hear about now. I love the fact well, that she was able to, to ask those questions and then she highlighted the importance of deeply listening to what this person had to say yeah not the I'm going to shape my questions in a way that you're going to respond in the way that I need you to respond within the time that I need you to respond totally well it's um, it's amazingly essentialist and reductionist to say that the person sitting across from me is only their homelessness or is only their child protection issue or is only their domestic violence situation I mean ultimately this is person-centered care we are coming at this person, we are speaking with this person as a whole holistic being. So we have to be pushing those boundaries and looking beyond those labels. And yeah. this is, what I love is, this is how to step it out and do it. But see, see this is my thing about health, right, Min? I think we waste yeah. a lot of time doing the same old, same old. So mm. we can use Elliot as an example from this, from this recording, right? 
So mm. we could go in and go homeless, right, I'm just going to organise some emergency housing and good luck with that, by the way. I'm just going to ring Link to Home and we'll sort it out and he'll get a few days in a, you know, a local hotel, whatever. Yeah. But, but in Elliot's case, that, that good use of questioning was able to highlight the fact that there is a real systems problem for him, that his major yeah. issue was his lack of an address in order yes. to be able to access certain government support and systems because he didn't have an address. Now, that's mm. not going to be sorted out by plonking him in a hotel for a few nights. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how often in health do we respond in the same old way and are wasting Elliot's time? Because that's Absolutely. probably not at all. I mean, I would say and actually not helping him, not ha helping him achieve the goals that he has, not the goals that the health system has, the goals that he has. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mim, um, why don't we just shift a gear and move into her her innovation, her, her innovative project. And I, I'd like mm. your take on it in terms of, you know, the research work that you do and maybe some commentary mm. about this. This is a really interesting project that she's worked on. And I know you've got some yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah, this is, I mean, what's beautiful about this is that this is inherently a practice-based research project. So this social worker has come at a clinical issue and thought about how she could take um, take the presentations that she's seeing and be able to deconstruct, to analyse and represent those as findings. Now, a lot of social workers in um, practice often will want to do research that is about their client presentations. Um, and we often have a lot of issues ethically around that and getting projects through um, human research ethic boards uh, when we're in those situations. And it's usually because of the lack of thinking through the ethical stance uh, of how we ask the questions, how we're de-identifying the people, how we're actually treating people as data. Um, now, I know that a lot of social workers out there are thinking, oh, I'm never going to do research ever. But one of the beautiful things about, especially a lot of students, but one of the beautiful things about social work is that we're all about creating change. So as soon as you've been working for a while, what actually happens is that you start to see gaps and you start to ask questions about what you're seeing around you. And that's where research comes in. And essentially that's where practice-based research shines because the questions that you come up with come from your practice. Now, in this sort of situation, the story that we've just heard, there's a couple of stories we've just heard is that what she was drawing on, you'll notice, is that she read out some communication with the um, clients. She read out um, some of uh, what would be interview transcripts, and those would have all gone through ethical process, ethical screening. And the way that she's asked those questions is that they're grounded in these ideas of challenging discourse, yeah? And so coming at it from what is the positionality of the social worker doing the research, what theories is framing their approach to their research um, is actually that really key starting point, which she has really beautifully articulated in, this, um, in these stories here. Um, 
I really think as well there's something here about the role of storytelling in research and we often as researchers get stuck in this um, ridiculous paradigm of quantitative versus qualitative and what's better what's worse and what's more what is truth and what's not and what this social worker is doing is demonstrating not just the foundational principles of qualitative research which is about the truth is actually perceived from different perspectives and understood in different ways, she's actually really clearly showing you how storytelling is a method of research. And that's something I really want our listeners to take on now if you're thinking about research, if you're a social work student or a social work practitioner who is wanting to engage with formal research in this way, or if you are, um, or when you're later on and you're practicing and you realize that you're starting to see gaps, I want you to take this idea on that storytelling is actually a fundamental research method. So as we've talked about on this episode, it's an intervention method, it's a narrative therapeutic approach, but it is also a research method. And that's really, really important. Um, this is something I'm really interested in, Liz, that I do a lot of work with social work practitioners, particularly in health around. And I think it's core to social workers being, research, being researchers and seeing research as a source of change creation. Because actually, we are all about storytelling. Whether we are researchers, whether we are practitioners, whether we are educators, we are all about change creation. And so for me, storytelling is our umbrella that brings together those things. And I know that's a bit of a rant from me, Liz, but I, think it, I don't think any of our listeners are going to be surprised after listening to other episodes that this is where you and I are coming from today, that you're so embedded in the beauty of the clinical process and the intervention that happened. And I'm so inspired by the research method that was demonstrated here and the coming together of those two concepts and ideas is just for me, Liz, just social work perfection. I, uh, look, well said as usual, Mim, I agree. I agree that like it's, it's a classic um, clinical intervention and as you say, um, research embedded in it. And I was really fascinated with not just the work, and we'll get to the um, the reauthoring with with Simon and Elliot in just a minute. Yeah. But I was also interested in the questioning of her colleagues. Now, at one stage, she's talking about chatting with or asking clinicians really really important questions like, "Who are you responsible to?" What mm. ethics guide your practice? What are your accountability practices? And now, can you imagine having this one over the lunchroom? I mean, what an amazing, amazing conversation to be encouraging colleagues to reflect on. Like, who are you working for? So often people go, oh, you know, we're very patient-centred. But is that really who people are working for? And I think to actually have the time to sit down and unpack that with someone like you say, Mim, could actually be change initiating. It Absolutely. could actually go, holy heck, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really do Let's need to Let's reorientate. Review. Yeah. That's right. Let's reorientate our entire position. Yes. And that's why I say positionality is so important in this. Absolutely. Whether you're coming at it from a practice perspective or a research perspective, you need to know who you are. How are you actually engaging with those ideas? And what is your 
um, thinking and approach to the dominant discourses that you're seeing around you. That is fundamentally what's happening, right? Because once you see a dominant discourse, you can't unsee it, Liz, particularly if you're a social worker. But I really think that it makes, it, it makes what is invisible visible. And so I think that's the point where you get to say, okay, now I see how um, the words that we use and the titles that we give and the notes that we write about people who, are, who present as homeless in the emergency department facilitate a negative and um, systemic, systemically uh, unfair scenario. Now that we've done that and discriminatory scenario, now that we've done that and we've recognised it, how do we shift our perspective? Yeah. And that's in those conversations with colleagues as well as in those convers therapeutic conversations with the person themselves. Exactly. So you have to, she had to have that conversation with her colleagues because when she yeah. uploaded Simon and Elliot's story that had been written in a way that was not pathologising, was not diminishing their, their, their life experience and was actually telling the story that Simon and Elliot wanted to tell, right? So imagine, yeah. I want to be in the heads of these clinicians when they read those stories. What shift took place in them when they read about, you know, Elliot's commitment to education, for instance? Simon's... Um, you know history in terms of his of his of his work, um, mm. and and the times when he has struggled with alcohol and times when he hasn't. Like so, yeah. those different stories that she was then not only able to re to re read back to Simon and Elliot, but also the clinicians. And there's where mm. one would hope, Mim, and I've got to hold on to this that it would have impacted on those clinicians in a way where I go, well, well, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't realise that that was the case with Simon. That's right. Elliot. That's now, right. And you, you really hope those light bulb moments will actually click in. For I've got to hold on to that one, Mim. The yeah, other thing I, I like to hold on to is the being the fly on the wall when Elliot and Simon listened to their stories read back. So I've used therapeutic letters before um, when I was a counsellor uh, and they're a very powerful tool. I've never, again, once again, I've never seen it used in the ED setting. And um, I think she acknowledged, look, there, there would have been a bit of time passed between when they told the story and when I listened to it and, and when I, I rewrote it and read yeah. it to them. But despite all that, to have heard their story told from that perspective, I, I can't but imagine that it would have been um, important for Simon and, and Elliot to have heard Absolutely. A, a different story read to them about Absolutely. themselves. Absolutely. This is, this is reminding me, Liz, of an episode that we did around narrative therapy with, um, with women in the forest. Do you remember? Yes, I do. Um, I do. Yes. And... Um, and in the show notes, we'll link back to that episode. But um, it was very much about that reauthoring of the experience that people had had. Uh, and I, um, I think that's so powerful, isn't it? To be able to have an external person say to you, here is how you're telling your story right now, but here's another way that we can actually um, reorientate and we can challenge some of those ideas 
that are perpetuated not just in you but for you right by others around you yeah I just think that's a hugely um, important therapeutic technique Mim mm. I want to talk about this more and more with you but I know I, there's I so think, much to say Liz I, I think <laughs> I think we will wind it up simply because it is going to be one of those episodes that that both of us will encourage our listeners to listen to more than once because it is Absolutely. so late and as you've said beautifully Mim it is that nexus with research as well as clinical practice and innovation that that is captured so beautifully in this story can I tell yeah. you just one funny story about me and narrative thoughts yeah 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 therapy? always so, so so that people can um you know it's if I can actually sacrifice my my professional self to you know people's learning let me do so but when so narrative therapy was particularly big in the 90s I mean it still is big but it, but when it first kind of came out there were many of us that that try to incorporate it into practice including myself I was working in oncology at the time and the way in which we had to think differently about questioning was you know like it bent my brain so I would work with another colleague to construct questions differently and it does require that it's like any new skill you actually do need to think about restructuring your questions to what you might have yeah. been doing previously and so I would you know it would bend my brain to come up with these questions and I would turn myself inside out and and in the process my poor patient so what I would do is I would have to ask this colleague to come and sit in the sessions with me to help me a little bit with this questioning mm. they're always with you know um, wonderful patients that were you know very tolerant of my uh, learning arc but I, I share it because I think it is one of those things that's worth considering as a clinician like yeah if you're going to be be looking at different ways to kind of change up your practice do it with a colleague you know, there yeah. are some beautiful questions here that you could absolutely go straight into your practice right tomorrow, really. Yes. I, if I can encourage people to just to do things differently, and in this case, you will get a different response, a different, yeah. and it will, it will feel different in terms of how you and, that, and your patient, your client, your consumer have a conversation. That's yeah, right. it's that it's that call out to to firstly be creative in your practice and to stretch yourself, but secondly to use your colleagues as a peer community, to actually you know lean on each other, get feedback from each other, allow each other to see your practice in action, and then to give you some constructive feedback because. Liz, we know this is how we learn. And the this other, how we learn. even better teacher, of course, is our client or our patient. Of course. And I would always be saying right up front and being transparent, like this social worker talks about, I'm going to be trying a few different questions on you. I might, might feel a bit fumbly to start off with, but I was wondering if I could, you know, do things a little yeah. differently. Well, they'll tell you pretty quick. If you and got that, it wrong. That's where the feedback will be, come from. That's it. That's it. I love it. Real-time feedback. That's it. But often, you know, you go, as students, we're observed all the time, but then you go into practice and however many years later, it could be, it could be years since someone ever saw you in practice. 
And how do you know that your skills are continuing to develop and continuing to grow unless actually you get that external feedback? So I love it, Liz. I absolutely love it. Um, so good to be back on the pod 2024. Isn't it just? Loved it. I know. Start off We've with got a lots big of good things story. Planned this we do. I know. We've got lots of good things planned this year. We're glad you're all in for the ride. Uh, we hope you're taking care of yourselves and um, spending time doing wonderful things. Let's let this year be a year of breathing, of uh, replenishment, nourishment, and, um, and just really good solid practice, Liz, yeah? Indeed, Mim. On that note, farewell, listeners, until next month. Take care. Take care, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work we do, We would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and write a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Liz Murphy, Dr. Mim Fox, Justin Stesch, Dr. Ben Joseph, and Maddie Stratton. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>